Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, everyone, to week two of Makoto Shinkai Director Month here on the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me to discuss Shinkai's newest film that just released in theaters in America this weekend is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Konbonwa! Is that a real... Is that a real... I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but... Arigato! Well, that's thank you. I, yeah, thank uh, you for saying good evening. <laughs> I guess it's just throwing words out. Okay. Konnichiwa. <laughs> Konnichiwa. What does you. that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I think that means you're welcome. I <laughs> This is starting off terribly. Uh, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> actually, this has made me, you know, totally going on a tangent here in the intro, but I've thought about how I could potentially start to learn some Japanese. I don't think I would ever put enough effort into it to truly learn conversational Japanese, although that would be amazing. But until we get to the point where we're, we're the Matrix and you can just, like, plug in the chip and I suddenly know it, yes, it's I not going to happen. <laughs> but, like, you know, I've thought about, like, firing up Duolingo just to, to pick up on certain phrases because I watch a lot of anime and a lot of anime films. And um, one of the things that I pulled out of the most recent viewing of Weathering with you was actually that I enjoy the Japanese language version more so than the American. I've seen them both now. And even though I liked the American dub, I thought it was pretty well done. There is a very big gap still in the expressiveness and the way that certain phrases are come up, come out versus, you know, language emotionally. Yeah. There's inflection that you could lose in the translation with an American dub because of the fact that you're not actually re it's not a transcription it's a translation and so your emphasis on certain words the way in which words are stressed here and there differs from culture to culture so yeah i think having having the native tongue being spoken um it's definitely more of an effort because you're looking at subtitles and with shinkai stuff or anybody's where you have a lot of text on the screen from just the visuals Having to keep up with, okay, what did that say? That's, oh, train station. Okay. And now I'm reading the dialogue down here. Um, it's challenging, but it's definitely worth it. Absolutely. Well, I, I've made it no secret uh, on this podcast in episodes previous and on social media how much I love this movie. And I'm excited for us to talk about it. But first, one quick note before we get going here. We've mentioned this a couple of times. This will be the last one. But coming up tomorrow, that is January the 20th. In our Facebook group, we'll begin the nomination process for the 2020 Feelers Choice Awards. This is where you, our listeners and community, get a chance to participate fully in an awards process. If you're upset about who got nominated for the Oscars, here's your chance. Come make your votes and be a participant. There will be polls for each award and the top five vote getters, sometimes 10, uh, will become the nominees. Then a couple of weeks later, we will share the final ballot in the Facebook group and have all of you pick your winners. The key here is that in order to make sure not just anyone is putting in their two cents, we keep this process locked down to our awesome discussion group. So if you're not a part of it already, please consider joining. You can get there at facebook.com slash groups slash feeling film. Polls will be up, so voting can take place through Friday, January the 24th, and we would love to have you. That being said, 
here is your spoiler warning. This movie is now out in theaters, so anyone and everyone can make it out to see it. Patrick saw this movie. That means it's playing in Arkansas, so we have no doubt that it's playing somewhere near you, too. Uh, get out there, support it with your dollars, because Lord knows movies like this do not make back their budget in America, and it would be nice to show them that we would like them to play in our theaters more often than not. But we're going to spoil the heck out of this. We're going to talk about it in depth, as we always do. Go see it. Come back for the conversation. If you've already seen it, get ready, sit back, and enjoy. Patrick, one word, takeaway time. What was yours, my friend? I wrestled with this because there were a handful that I really wanted to plug in, but the one that stuck with me was the word content. And mostly it had to do with the way that I reacted after finishing up this movie. Shinkai is challenging as a writer-director. I think he does that intentionally. His movies are attractive to you and I specifically because they remind us a lot of Christopher Nolan and his approach to storytelling, manipulating time and wrapping up sci-fi inside a an adventure or a romance. And when I, I watched Weathering With You, I intentionally didn't really look at the synopsis before watching. I really wanted to go into it blind. And I got the same reaction that I get with Shinkai stuff, which is I got to watch this again to really kind of pick up on what's going on. But I left this viewing really feeling content, like not just that I got what I needed to get, but that I felt good leaving it. It wasn't something that was overwhelmingly like, oh my gosh, that blew my mind. But as I should expect from Shinkai, it never ceases to make me feel something deep and something emotionally evocative and something that's worth discussing. Um, when you were, when we were talking about director month a couple of months ago before the end of the year, you had mentioned Shinkai and I said, that's fine. And you were just overly excited. I don't know if that was because you didn't think that I wouldn't dig it. Anime is not my number one genre of choice. I fully admit that, but with the exposure that I've had over the last few years by choice or by proxy through the podcast and whatnot, it's grown on me and I've learned to appreciate the different stylistic approaches that directors take. I actually have a couple of favorites and I wouldn't have had that a couple of seasons ago, but when I'm able to leave a movie like this that has some discomfort from a genre standpoint, as well as um, some other elements and go, man, I really felt like that was good. That was really solid. I like feeling that way. I like feeling like I can, celebrate the success of a creator's work because part of film criticism is that especially for us it's really tying into the emotional aspect of it and while i wasn't as emotionally invested as i had been with other movies it didn't matter because this did just what it needed to do for me and i walked away feeling content well good that's good enough for me I, you know i i didn't fall in love with this on my very, very first time seeing it now. So fair disclosure to listeners, I've seen it three times now, three and a half kind of technically, and I've seen it in both native Japanese and then also in English. So it's had that time to resonate and simmer with me for even over a month. I've been able to read other pieces on it and think and write and all kinds of stuff. So I am definitely coming at it with a much more deep approach i think than you will coming off of your first viewing i think it's cool that you recognize 
exactly what we talked about in his previous film that we discussed on this show. And we've talked about it with your name and we will probably say the same thing on the remaining two episodes we cover about how they're better on rewatch. Not that they're not amazing on the first time, but that they have that depth, which is something that you and I look for and value really, really highly in movies that are up there on our favorites list. Movies that we can rewatch, movies we can mine more from each time we see them. Um, my one word takeaway, it's funny because I actually struggled with this, Patrick. As much as I love the film, I didn't have a knockdown, drag out one word takeaway for quite a while. And it kind of finally hit me as I was sitting around thinking about this after that third viewing. There are so many reasons why I love the movie, but the word that I kept coming back to the most was family. And I think that the reason is because it feels like this is a bit of a shift from what Shinkai typically focuses on. This movie has his teen angst and romance, and that is a certainly a big part of the story, but more so than his previous filmography, it's really centered around multiple characters and all kinds of different situations that are very atypical of the traditional family. And the decisions that they end up facing and having to make are because of the importance of the people that they consider family members, even though sometimes they aren't actually family members by blood. And we'll get into that into specifics later, I'm sure. But that's really what stuck out the most to me. And it was the thing that I found myself being the most deeply moved by, even more so than just the central romance. Well, I want to start off talking about the structure of the film. We started with that when we discussed uh, the previous movie. And this one, for me, seems to move and flow differently than other Shinkai films that I've seen. There's still that teenage romance. There is some sort of magical connection involved. So that's present. But I feel like this film plays out much more straightforward. There isn't time jumping or space hopping going on. And I I wondered if that, A, did it catch you off guard at all? Were you expecting something a little more hard to follow? And did it work for you having this told in a much more linear fashion? I expected to need to take a quiz at the end of it when I initially started watching it. And I wasn't disappointed or satisfied with the fact that it was more linear. What I was reminded of is that Shinka is not a one trick pony and that just as kind of a semi spoiler, as we go through the garden of words and then five centimeters per second, what's great about Shinkai or any director, when you go through his filmography or her filmography is that you get to see how things evolve. You get to see where director trademarks live. And so there's a bit of familiarity with Shinkai's work in Weathering With You, even though it was a bit more straightforward. There's an interconnectivity that exists between a multitude of characters. Your one word takeaway hinted at that, where one person's choices affect another, and that person's choices affect even another one. There's a sense of loyalty. There's a sense of altruism. There's a sense of battling between 
the greater good and one's own motivations that I believe are in the, you know, I, I admit that I haven't seen five centimeters per second, so I'm excited to see that. But at least in these three, that idea, and even in your name, that exists, that idea of being connected with somebody else or being connected with a group of people and making choices that could affect an entire world or an entire universe. So there were fam- there were familiar elements to what Shinkai brings to most, if not all of his stories. But when you package them up in a way that does feel more straightforward, it feels a little bit less distracting. It feels like I don't need to dissect as much and I can enjoy the actual experience the first time around. And as you mentioned, it's okay to need to watch something more than once because of things that you might miss. But there is a level of frustration that can come from an initial watch where there's so much abstract and so much kind of ambiguity that you're left going, what did I just watch? I'll say this, for Shinkai, I don't feel that way. For Satoshi Kon, I do, but it's an exciting thing for me because it's it's obvious with him. It was obvious with the stories that he was telling. And so with Shinkai watching Weathering with you, it was a bit of breath it was a bit of a breath of fresh air to be able to watch something that didn't necessarily use time jumps or weirdness, but still keep that element of fantasy and mythology and interconnectivity with something beyond just the human experience. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. And it's funny because, you know, Garden of Words is linear as well, so it's not like they all have this structure, but most of them have. And it's even a bit of a fail to say that it's totally linear. It's not totally linear. I mean, for goodness sakes, the movie starts off uh, in a place that then jumps a little bit and moves around in time. And uh, for me, I remember back to the first time I watched it, and I will say that I found it sort of distracting that it was so linear (laughs) because I was waiting and wondering when is it going to pull the rug out from under me and show me something that I wasn't expecting? When is it going to tell me, oh no, we're really not doing what I'm telling you we're doing. It's a feint and that there is something else actually happening because I've become kind of conditioned to that with some of his work. So that first viewing, it took me a little bit of adjusting to accept that it was really happening (laughs) just in this straightforward nature. And so like you said, there is there's a, a bit of a positive and a negative to that. And it's it's really negative is not the word, but there is something to kind of overcome and get used to when you're going into that for the first time. I liked it a lot. I ultimately find it pretty refreshing. Now, I think that his stories that have jumped around in time have a very strong purpose and reason for doing so. And that's why I love them. And I don't mind it because once I've come to understand why he's doing that it all makes perfect sense and it is what the narrative calls for so that is one thing that i really respect about him as a filmmaker and you said this you know is that he's not a one-trick pony he can do it all he can he understands when to do those things it's not a gimmick right it's one of the things that you and i hate about people who criticize christopher nolan 
shockingly, listeners, if you're, there are people out there that don't like this man and his movies. I don't understand who why. are those people. Let me get their numbers. <laughs> but they call him gimmicky, right? And that's not the case. He tells stories exactly in the way that they need to be told. It's not like he comes up with a crazy idea. It's like we talked about it in our 1917 episode, right? Mendez didn't say, I want to make a one shot movie. What can I do? Hmm. What story can I tell that will fit a one shot story? He knew the story he wanted to tell. And then that method came out of it. That's what Shinkai does. And that's why we got a straightforward narrative and it worked very well for me as well. Um, I appreciated that I was able to emotionally get invested to the point where I'm constantly wondering what is going to happen next and knowing that whatever happens next is actually affecting the story for good. It's not going to be a twist, right? So I kind of want to go through some of the main characters here. We don't typically do the, like, let's talk about this character and then let's talk about this character, but we're going to break that up a little bit here. So I want to start with Hodaka because um, I feel that Hodaka is the story's perspective that we are meant to be seeing. I've seen some pushback on Facebook just in the last couple of days. I've read a couple of reviews actually that kind of criticized this movie, saying that they felt that there was not enough attention given to Hina's perspective, that the movie wants to have it both ways and be from both of their perspectives, but it's not giving enough time to hers and they find hers to be much more interesting than his. I don't personally, I find Hodaka's arc to be incredibly, incredibly powerful and moving. So he's a runaway. We learn that pretty quickly. He's coming over in the middle of the weather craziness on this ferry and he goes outside to experience it. And almost dies, of course, and that's where he meets Mr. Suga, who ends up coming into this really interesting, unique, familial-type relationship with him. Uh, and then, as he progresses, he ends up, you know, meeting Hina. He ends up getting this awesome pet cat named Rain, who I absolutely loved. And I hope your theater went crazy at the end when Rain shows up on Suga's desk. Uh, I know mine did, and I appreciated that. <laughs> and then Hodaka also has this really intriguing kind of subplot with a gun that took me a second because it it feels so modern <laughs> that it almost doesn't fit in Shinkai's filmography <laughs> to this point. You're almost like, wow. I mean, he's dealt with sort of like war and certain, you know, battle concepts before, but it's always in a fantasy element. It's never like this kinetic and realistic. And so that was a little bit of a jolt the first time for me. Uh, what did So I really liked Hodaka's arc, but what did you think about it? I thought that Hodaka was, he's a character that when you see him on screen, you get that sense of incompleteness. He's a runaway. He has a... I won't call it a mysterious past, but a past that we don't know about. And when I look at his arc specifically in relation to others, it's a puzzle piece that fits with other characters in the story. And this is where I think Shinkai shines is he doesn't waste characters at all. Every character feels like it has a purpose. 
But when it comes to him specifically, I do believe he carried this because while the movie starts with Hina and it goes back to that moment later on where she reveals that she's a sunshine girl, it really is him that is the motive throughout. It's his motive to get her work, first of all, to rescue her from sleazy club life, and then to get her a legit job by using what she is gifted in, and then ultimately falls in like with her, and then, I guess, in love with her, and then finally pursues her to a point where another sacrifice is made. So when you look at what Shinkai is doing, I don't know. I, I don't want to argue that this was his story or her story. I think it's their story with other characters supporting that. But if you were to put this on her completely, I think it demeans the value of that relationship that they both have. I think they both need each other, but he's the one that for my money, he carries it because he's the one that actually pushes the narrative forward through his choices, whether they're good or bad. Absolutely. You're 100% correct. So she's not becoming a sunshine girl without somebody's influence in her life. She's not making that decision on her own, right? And he is the catalyst, as you say, for that act to take place and for the whole thing to even progress from there. I think that he gives us such a great way to get these different familial relationships. I love everything about his initial meeting with Kai on the boat and him freaking out about how much money it cost to buy him a beer and this whole, like I saved your life thing. Um, it is such a wholesome relationship for someone to save someone's life, not really be looking for anything from them and then offer them some sort of support when he goes into the house for the first time and he's able to, he meets Natsumi. I think it is really well done how he, we get a sense of him still being a teenager. So, and he's, to me, he's portrayed really great because we see him in situations where he's got to be growing up pretty fast. He's struggling on the street by himself. He goes to a hotel and has to stay in this little bitty tiny room where, you know, he has to pay to use the shower or whatever for X amount of time. But yet when he walks up on Natsumi for the first time, he's a kid, he's a 16 year old boy. And it's like, were you looking at my boobs? <laughs> you know? And of course he was. And it's done in a, a really playful, like honest kind of way. Right. And it's, and it doesn't go any further than that, but he, you know, falls into this family. He's clearly getting away from something on the island and I don't think it's ever really explained to us what that is is it no he's I didn't escaping yeah no, I, I didn't either and I don't but, think he necessarily we I don't think really need to care about that because you're mentioning this growing up as being what we're really attaching ourselves to is that quick grow up process coming of age which is right. what we like right <laughs> yeah and you know sugar takes him in and and it serves as a surrogate because we also know later we learn that, you know, Kaisuke is not able to be with his daughter at this time and he's recovering from having lost his wife. And so 
Hodaka is filling a role in these people's lives just as much as they're filling a role in Hodaka's life and his story. And the beautiful thing about it, Patrick, I think is that not everything in this is for life. So his relationship with Kaisuke and Natsumi ultimately are something that is for a time. They are super impactful on him. I mean, for goodness sake, she helps him escape. And that sequence is one of my favorite things in the whole movie, man, is when she comes riding in on that motor, motor or that scooter and she's like, there's no turning back now. We're outlaws, you know, and, and her being like, I think I want to be a motorcycle cop. And him saying, one of my favorite lines in the entire movie. And he's like, I don't think they're going to let you do that now. <laughs> but like, there's these relationships built, but then he ends up going back to the island, right? For three years on probation at the end of the movie. He has to finish out high school before he can come back as an adult to, to, to Tokyo. Those relationships have moved on, but they served a time in his life. It reminded me of my own high school. Like I, I can think of youth pastors, for example, that, that had a really big impact on me in a very small amount of time, small amount of time being a couple of years or something. And I don't, do anything more than say hi to them occasionally on Facebook now. Right. And that's fine. That doesn't devalue what they meant to me in that moment. And that's how I see the relationships that Hodaka has with Kaisuke and his family. And, and I see it happen in reverse as well, because clearly he impacts them in ways that help them move on and grow out of kind of the funk that they're currently in as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it's where the the title plays in nicely because he is weathering the life that he's living with them and they are weathering their grief with him and the relationship. And there is a, a value and a need that all of these guys have for each other. One of my favorite scenes is it's nothing emotionally impactful. It's just really fun to watch. Uh, I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for montages, whether they're training montages or cleaning up the house. But I love watching him in this environment where he's being given a job, room and board, and he's having to make breakfast. And this is, again, this is a Shinkai thing too. It's probably other anime directors as well, but of course we're focusing on Shinkai where he's showing us the Japanese culture. I love watching these guys cook. I, I loved watching the whole sequence where where um where Hina is making him dinner with chips and ramen noodles and all this stuff but the the scene several minutes before where we're watching him get acclimated to living and working and being around this pseudo couple is fascinating to me because it shows me this is just normal life. Whereas an American, I'm like, this looks really great. I didn't know you did all this. Where if we showed this to an American audience or we reinterpreted this, this would essentially be an apprentice working in, you know, an auto shop or, or something like that. And it says a lot about not really his work ethic, but really more about how he wants to be acclimated. He wants to be a part of this world any way he can. And you're right. It's innocent. It very much is a mutual, a mutually beneficial relationship that he has with these two and that they have with him. And the impact that it has 
it doesn't have to be monstrous. It doesn't have to be like epic. It can simply be, you know what? I learned those lessons from these two. I have that same relationship. There are past relationships that affect my relationship with my wife in positive and negative ways, but I'm not going to be ungrateful for those because they were things I learned from. And I think for him and what Shinkai does specifically is he shows that to us, how that impact can be meaningful to him, even if it's not necessarily world changing. Oh, absolutely. And he's just so easy to root for. And I think that's something for both of them. They, you just fall into it. It's you want them to be able to be together. You want them to succeed. He is a genuinely good and sincere kid. There is nothing that he is doing that is harmful in the sense. Like he's trying to live by the law, the correct way without the supervision of his parents. He's trying to get a job and, and be successful and, and carry and make this new life for himself. Um, he tries to help them when it comes to Hina and her brother, uh, the little ghosts. I don't know if you know this. So one thing that Shinkai is always in, in many anime directors, but Shinkai specifically is always kind of weaving into his films. And we talked about it during our episode on your name is the religion and the traditional beliefs um, of Japan and the little ghosts that he puts on the umbrella. And we get that really hilarious scene um, where her brother is like in the costume, right? And we also see that same little ghost in Hina's mom's hospital room. Those are supposed to be magical and bring good weather slash prevent the rain. They're called Teru Teru Bazo or Bozo or Bozu or something like that. Teru Teru Bozu. Um, so it's a, it's a specific thing, right? And it's for an American audience. I know you probably like me saw it the first time and we're like, okay, that's a cute little ghost thingy that they're using as some sort of a mascot. Like that's how, I mean, I didn't know what it was, right? I mean, I assumed it might be something kind of spiritualistic for them, but it, there is a very specific meaning for that. That thing is supposed to prevent the rain. And then we also have, of course, the shrine and, you know, the praying and going through it, kind of crossing over, um, which we see in your name, the shrine, like in crossing over experienced as well. And I, I like how some of those things are woven in. Um, but getting back to Hodaka, so we also see this thing with the gun, right? And he finds it in the trash. And I think that in addition to some of the fast food nature of how this film is exploring Tokyo in the here and now, it's really letting us know, like, this is the present. McDonald's is a big thing, right? There are brands all over the place. This is a realistic thing that could happen is, you know, you could find a gun in a trash can and he does and he ends up using it to protect Tina. And of course, the gun comes back into play later on and I can see how that sequence might come off as melodramatic to some viewers. I was wondering how the ending kind of climactic moments with the police and Mr. Sugar and everybody kind of coming together in that abandoned room worked for you. Well, I think had you not introduced the gun early, it wouldn't have worked as much. Um, there was a part of me that felt like the gun was a little bit overly valued because it, 
it seemed to represent more than it actually was. I think it represented a sense of power or represented it. And more than anything for me, I think it was a plot device. I think it was a way to say, okay, this is going to get me from one place to another, but it was effective. And it wasn't something that I was distracted by. I like the fact that it was bookended that one moment he is using it to rescue her. And the next moment it is the thing that rescues him. Well, through the, through the right hands, but it's because of the relationships that he's built that it's able to do that. You know, the, the, the old adage, guns don't kill people, people kill people. I'm stretching it when I say that, but the fact is the gun didn't matter ultimately. It could have been anything else. It could have been a knife. It could have been some kind of other weapon. But the fact is, I think Shinkai uses it effectively without making it a full blown symbol of something else. I mean, you can make the argument that gun shows a sign of maturity. Well, maybe. I mean, at that opening scene, he holds a gun up that he doesn't even know if it's real or not and shoots it and scares the crap out of the guy. Well, that's an immature thing to do. Don't give a 16 year old kid a gun. Yeah. And then later on, when we see it make its return, it's used. You can make the argument that it was used purposefully, effectively. It was used to allow him to uh, to move forward. So there's a lot of interesting stuff you can make for it. But ultimately, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I thought it was a decent little plot device and nothing that was overly distracting. Yeah, so it has become something that I found to be really effective. And in fact, that whole sequence there is was really close to being a connecting point for me because I break down and lose it when I'm watching that whole time period go down. Because what has happened in context, of course, is that Hina has now been sunshined, not sunshined away. <laughs> Spirited away, maybe? Spirited away. That's right. She's been spirited away. And Hodakai is running to get to her, escaped the police. And he is, it is, this is the period where young love is taking over. And Shinkai, who is so good at expressing characters in that euphoric, chaotic state where decision-making is sort of thrown out the window. We'll talk about that even more later, but... That's what we see here. When you want something or someone so badly, you, in this case, to save Hina, to bring her back, right? He doesn't even know if it's going to work, Patrick. He's hope, he is literally operating on a hope and a prayer at this point that he is going to magically want it bad enough that if he goes through this shrine gate, he's going to be able to go save her somehow. He doesn't know how this works. He just knows that he's in pain without her. And so we see him and he gets confronted with these people that are trying to stop him. And I think it is so well done because I feel what he feels and his perspective. There's a, there's a moment where we go first person POV behind him pointing the gun and he is shaking and he is so scared, right? And he is so furious at anybody trying to stop him, but he's not really furious at the people trying to stop him. He's furious because of what has happened and what's taken place and what's been taken from him. And he just, he just wants that to happen. Right. And so he doesn't 
have any ill, it doesn't mean any ill will toward these people. And that's one of the things I love about Hodoka as a character is he is innocent. He is so sincere. He's not legitimately wanting to hurt anyone at all. He's trying to do something that very realistically someone might do because we've grow up in a world where a gun is a sign of authority. A gun is a sign of strength and domineering, right? And so he's using that to his advantage to try and get what he needs. And it, of course, culminates in this, what, I mean, I, I'm serious. I lose it, man. I, I will, I'm going to lose it just talking about it. But like when this family aspect that I keep referring to comes into play again and Sugar like realizes Kaisuke, he's like, I, I understand now. And like, it doesn't, I'm going to sacrifice because it's not, it's not just one character that starts sacrificing here, right? They're all making sacrifices for each other in this loop. It's a beautiful thing. And he you know, tackles the cop to try and let him get by, which is obviously a very long-term dangerous move for him. And then you get that little bit of humor that Shinkai's so well at kind of putting in in the right spot when you're like, for me, I'm like in tears at that point because of the way that the characters are being expressive and you know, Hodoka's trying to get up the stairs and Nagi comes in out of nowhere with his little wig on after escaping with his little girlfriends and tackles, you know, somebody as well, you know, go save my, and the way he's screaming, go save my sister. Dude. I mean, I, I don't think it would have worked as well without the threat. And I think that's what the gun did for me is it, it was, it made it real. It made it serious. It made it a legitimate thing that could change his life forever. It's not just him going to throw a rock at a cop and get in trouble. He could legitimately make a choice in this point where he is so overcome with emotional grief. This is what happens to real life people is we make poor decisions because we're not thinking straight. And I thought it represented or expressed all of that so perfectly. Yeah, this is something that in some of the lawyer shows I've been watching is expressed a lot where you have someone who is beyond the point of sanity. And there was an argument made in one of these episodes where the prosecuting attorney basically says, if you're arguing insanity for a person, isn't it somewhat insane anytime anyone murders someone? There's a level of insanity that exists. Good point. <laughs> and I think that there's something to be said about that here where no one in their quote right mind would do the things that he's doing, but that's normal because that's all of us. There's a point we get to where we're determined and we will stop at nothing to insert what it is, get my daughter back or make that thing happen or win a national championship, you know, whatever it is. It's just this, this sense of determination that sometimes you leave a wake of broken glass that could be represented through relationships or whatever, or you could increase your level of danger that you get put in. And you're right. I think the, for me personally, I don't know that it made as much of an impact as it did for you, but I do think the gun was effective. And I can see from your standpoint how that became effective. And so, yeah, I think it's good. Well, as I figured this might happen, I would just start going off like crazy. Um, so, <laughs> so moving on to person number two, protagonist. No, uh, the other main person we follow in this movie, obviously, is Hina. And... She is also orphaned in a sense. They're, they have similarities there. I know he's run away. 
she's not really a runaway because she's not got parents left to run away from, sadly. But she is a parent to Nagi, her little brother. And she becomes the Sunshine Girl. Um, she's let out. She wants the rain to stop because that's something that her mom would want uh, as she's dying. And, you know, for her hopes, she becomes this person of power that has the ability to kind of bring a pause to the torrential downpours that have been plaguing Tokyo. I love all of her different roles. I love seeing her be that parent. I, I think you brought up the one scene I was going to mention for sure, which was the making dinner scene or whatever, the lunch scene. I always wonder what she's making. So I'm like, what is this dish? It's kind of like Parasite when they make Ramdon or whatever. And I see all my friends posting on Facebook, like I'm making Ramdon when I to celebrate par Parasite. Apparently it's really good. I can't eat it because it has noodles. But anyway, I digress. I can't eat what Hina was making either. But I'm wondering, I'm like, what is she doing? There's noodles and there's chips on top of it. And like, what is this dish that she is creating? But there is something special about food in Japanese culture, specifically about sharing a meal and seeing that play out. And you see the way in which she's very careful to make sure she's taking care of her brother. Um, she's faking her age. And she's reluctant to become the Sunshine Girl. And she kind of has to get pushed into that. But I think they start to see the benefits of it. Not really only for themselves, but I think what keeps them going is also understanding like the, the joy of what they are bringing to other people. That this isn't just about like them making money. This is about them providing... That's a, a nice benefit, but they're providing a service that is putting good out into the world and it is helping other people you know that is really represented well i think when she has the conversation with the grandmother uh, and the grandson during that specific act where the grandmother invites her to set this fire for her mother as well um and they they really share a moment a moment there and you you start to see that i think for me she comes off as believable as older than him i never once really questioned it because she acts like she's more mature she feels like she has it together um and i think that that makes her arc e even more tragic in the end because of like she knows when she's setting herself up to make a sacrifice and she's doing it with a full understanding of what that cost means. And it's like, she's kind of made that plan all along from early on. She knows it's coming. And so it's like, gosh, how, how does someone have to be so selfless to accept that and know that she just wants to create the best world she can for her brother in the meantime? Yeah. Here, here's something interesting about her is that I, First of all, I love every scene with her in it. I think it's just, this is where Shinkai's animation just shines. Um, and his love for rain and trains and all that good stuff that we're so used to. Um, as Aaron is showing me his desktop wallpaper on his phone, I guess his phone wallpaper, he keeps, <laughs> I can't do that because I'm married and I have a child and so they occupy well, my phone. I'm single. So yeah, I have Hina on my 
film wallpaper. That's right. And I Sidebar, have James Hamrick. I can't put Sing Street on my phone because I'm married and have a child and I have priorities, dude. But Sing Street is still – I'm still the biggest <laughs> fan. So anyway, <laughs> if you're listening, you know what's up. Anyway, nice. but watching her on screen and seeing where her motivation starts and how it progresses, the output is still the same. She's the sunshine girl. But we find out that she starts doing that because she wants one more day or one more week with her mom in the sunlight. And so she gets this power. And then until she meets up and she starts saying, okay, what do I, what do I do next? It's, it's her and her brother. But then Hodaka connects with her and he, what could be, it's not obviously, but on initial glance, it could be a sense of exploiting this magical power is really him allowing her to use that power to be more altruistic. And as you mentioned, she is that person. She's that person who is self, not self-serving. She is selfless in her act, knowing early on that that power is going to have a finite result, that at some point she will disappear. What a heavy weight to bear, knowing that this isn't forever. And to find out, to be involved in this relationship with Horika and know that potentially it's going to be finite as well. I mean, it's tragic and it's beautiful. And in some ways, her, her relationship with Horika in a loose way reminded me a lot of Rita and Phil's relationship in Groundhog Day, where you had this pure female character who saw the world in such an optimistic way who was teaching someone who saw the world in a less than selfless way and how they learned from each other and how they started to fit together like that perfect puzzle. So watching her go through her arc and knowing after the fact that she's been living with this and she knows that she's not going to have this power forever, it makes the, the end or the near end of this so much more impactful because she ultimately is doing something for the greater good because she knows that it matters to the world and not that her virtue is better than his or anybody else's, but it's a really great contrast because while he's pursuing her, she's pursuing something else, even though her relationship and her love for him is mutual she also knows the weight that she's bearing. And it feels, I mean, in some ways it's very Christ-like because at one point I almost imagine her kind of looking up to the sky and saying, hey, if you could take this from me, please do. And then she settles and she says, nope, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, I feel like in some ways we're getting a little bit of that Gethsemane uh, context where she's holding this on her and then ultimately she gives up her spirit. So it, it's very beautiful. Her her whole arc is very beautiful. Well, I completely agree. Um, I love her to death. I think she's a wonderful, wonderful protagonist uh, as well. And I think she's a great match for him. I think that they go well together. Um, I mean, she's self-serving. <laughs> self-serving. See, now I messed it up too. She is selfless as well. Like right off the bat, I mean, she brings him the Big Mac when he is sitting there in McDonald's homeless, essentially not having anything to eat. And I love when he asks her about that. And he says, is that why you got fired? And she says, no, 
And it made me wonder, like, is she telling the truth? Like, you know, she says other there's other reasons. And I think there could be either she actually did get fired for giving him the Big Mac and she doesn't want him to feel bad about it. Or she could have gotten fired for her age being discovered. I'm guessing it's probably the latter because that seems like the more realistic reason um, and the reason she might fall into what she does, which is that sleazy kind of sex club type pushing that those guys are wanting to pull her into that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness and like nowhere else to turn. Um, and then it, it is just beautiful to have these two people kind of come together by accident, by happy accident. And yet they're both immediately the first time they meet each other, they're willing to put themselves on the line for one another because it's right. Not because they're in love yet, not even because they're in like yet, but just because there are other human beings that are in need and they are the type of people that see someone else in need and feel compelled to fill that need. Right. Same reason that Hodica brings rain, the cat home with him <laughs> because the cat was in need and needed a home. And so he did that. So I, I love them together as well. Uh, I, I think the, Family aspects. So we, we have Kaisuke and we have all this great little support character stuff going on throughout the film with him. And we ultimately find out Natsumi is his niece. I think that's a beautiful scene them at the park when they're able to get Kai's daughter and actually have some time with her. And that's when Minhotika finds out it's his niece and she's like, are you kidding me right now? You thought I was his mistress. What is wrong with you? <laughs> it's just, it's hilarious. But you see, you know, again, like he, Kai is this adult character that we can relate to in many ways, I think, because he's lost something, you know, he's lost his wife. He's mourning over that. He's still got notes up on the refrigerator from her. The place that he works in is named after her. It's K&A, which is her initial. And he's struggling. You know, he, he's got this arc where the grandma says that he, his daughter can't be with him. That was tough, man. Like As a parent who has joint custody and has gone through a time period where it wasn't necessarily vindictive reasons, but I was just separated for whatever the case may be. In fact, as someone who is a previous smoker and was literally told many times, like, I don't want you smoking around the kids and like had to go through some of these similar conversations that resonated with me as well. And he's fighting that, right? He's fighting those kind of internal desires and habits versus what he really wants, which is to spend time with his daughter and to have that back. And it's tough for him, you know, when you're in a place of depression, like he is, it's hard to pull yourself out and make the life changes you need to make to get you to a place where you can see it's almost mirroring the weather, right? In this always gloomy, always dark, you don't see the light at the end of the day. You don't see that tunnel where you're going to come out of it and things yeah. are going to be okay. And because of Hodaka and ultimately what he leads them to through Hina, the two of them provide that to Kaisuke. And it's in this just beautiful way, I think, that they become this family that's not a blood family, but it is every bit 
a group of people who would do anything for each other. I think that's a common thing that I've seen in a lot of the anime that centers around characters, which I think, again, I haven't seen extensively all anime, but the the dozen or so movies that I've seen by these different directors, that's a central focus is the uh, friends or the family that you make, that kind of thing, you know, as we quote from Peanut Butter Falcon. And there's some value to that. Even Satoshi Kon, in some ways, unifies in uh, one of his movies, he unifies three homeless people who are completely different from each other around an abandoned baby <laughs> on Christmas Eve. And there's this great power that exists in storytelling from the world of Japanese culture where you focus on characters. You don't focus necessarily on the bigger picture. So when you have that as sort of a backbone, as sort of a DNA trait inside your narratives, and then you take a guy like Makoto Shinkai and you attach a supernatural element to it, that's what I think and why we gravitate towards him as a director, because he's doing something that is both familiar and different. And when you have these two characters, when you have Kai and Natsumi, their chemistry together, I think, is really fantastic. She doesn't take any crap from him. Like, she's very blunt with him. And I like the fact that he shows this depression and how um, Shinkai ties it with the weather. Because there's something to be said about that. Look, I love cold weather. I like hoodies and I like bundling up. But man, this is the hard part of the year for me emotionally. And there's something to be said about seasonal affect, about not getting out of the house that much, about having overcast a lot. The last three or four days have been just kind of off and on rain. And I'm like, can you stop raining? Can you just be clear for a minute? Mostly oh, come because, at me, bro. Let me tell you. <laughs> I, yes. yes. I'm very much aware. <laughs> yes. I might be speaking. This might be. We in Southern Seattle feel you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is West Coast problems right here. But the truth is, there is an emotional connection that exists, can exist with the weather. And Shinkai really, really plays this up in a way that's effective because it's just the downpouring. It's so heavy, literally, metaphorically. It's It just doesn't stop. And the one time that we feel like it stops outside of the sunshine is when the disaster is not over yet. It just turns to snow. And so he has this way of allowing us to experience some of that dread, but then giving us those moments of either brevity, levity, whatever it is, where we can take a breath. And um, and, and the snow sequence, the, the scenes that take place in the snow, I think are an example of that. I would completely agree with that explanation and we're going to talk about his weather stuff here in a second. He, he definitely is animates weather in a way that makes you experience it and feel it like no other I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he is bar none the best at that that has ever, ever lived. The last thing I wanted to mention though, is just, I really enjoy the comedy that comes from uh, Naji, the brother and the few brief scenes we really get with him. We don't have a lot from him, but they're a lot of fun. You know, Hodaka first sees him on the bus, and he's got these two little girlfriends, and Hodaka's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then 
we get uh, the moment where he's like, I'm not wearing that stupid costume. And the next time we see him, he's like bouncing around in the, you know, Torituro Bozu thing. Um, and then we get the wonderful little advice giving moment when Hodaka's like, what do I get her? And he's giving Hodaka the advice on how to date his sister. And, and remember, this kid's like four or five years younger, if if not more. And, and Hodaka's like, starts calling him senpai which is like teacher. And, and of course, like a, it's an expression of uh, an elder. And it, it just, it's such a cute, cute, hilarious, like little gag that isn't overplayed. It doesn't have attention drawn to it. Um, he casually refers to him as senpai throughout. And then that scene in the child services office, when the two girls come in and the second, when the first one takes out the guard, because she's got to go use the bathroom and the second one like takes off the wig and she's like i can't oh, believe gosh. you would call your ex-girlfriend to do this <laughs> and you're just, <laughs> so like, funny. you're just like this little dude is awesome oh, like he, he is yeah. such a freaking fun cool character to help lighten the mood mm-hmm. but also never let you forget like there's a kid that is reliant on her and he needs what she's providing for him. And that's a tangible thing that has to be dealt with here that is always hanging in the balance. And so, uh, yeah, I just, I love all of these characters. I love them so much. And they all have their own stuff going on. Natsumi, who loves being this occult journalist, but is ready to go get a real job. Yeah. get out of there like, always she enjoys it. for another job yeah always but she enjoys it but like she's like she's ready to like have her own thing mm-hmm. you know um and her looking for a way to do that i just i think it's great all the relationships here so good yeah i don't think anyone is wasted well i want to talk about the weather and climate change we always talk about the weather it's just casual conversation it's and enough. choice and control my joking question is why is shinkai continually destroying japan via natural disasters (laughs) i mean this is two movies in a row first he took out the countryside with a meteor yeah now he's taking out tokyo i i don't know what this man has against his homeland but (laughs) it's a love letter yeah i mean joking that's a love letter well i love you so much i kill you (laughs) so so here's the thing um in our ghostbusters episode that you were uh absent for jeremy and i were talking about um the director Reitman and he had gone on record as saying he wanted New York to be elevated to a place of, uh, of prominence. He wanted people who have never been to New York to want to go there. And so if you actually watch Ghostbusters, you can see so many different monuments, so many different iconic places that the movie takes place in. And what happens? A big state puff marshmallow man starts destroying it. Same thing with New York. I mean, New York is the, proverbial destructive playground of the mcu or of any major movie that takes place in the um you know in the country that or new york um yeah new york or la but i think what shinkai does here is this is family to him this is like his little brother in some ways where he knows the city he knows the land and when you have that kind of familiarity with the space that you live in I think in some ways it is a bit like I'm going to use this as my canvas to tell my story. I think if he were to go someplace else, if he were to have this story take place in New York or 
Berlin or, you know, just randomly I'm thinking of other countries and cities. I don't think it would be nearly as effective because Shinkai loves his culture. And I think when you can play in that culture, you can play in that sandbox and say, what would happen if I did this? What would happen if I completely flooded Tokyo? What's interesting is that in your name, one of my favorite, favorite scenes that's elevated by uh, Radwimp's soundtrack is called Visiting Tokyo or Going to Tokyo. And it's just this immaculate scene where we are seeing the beauty that is Tokyo. And so to be able to just bury it underwater, <laughs> I think is in some ways Shinkai's uh, way of saying, I love this city enough to destroy it, which sounds so bad. But I think that that comes from a, a sense of familiarity more than anything else. Interesting. Interesting. Well, you know, my I theory, know, I know it's probably, I, best, but I still go back to, I love you. So I kill you, but it's that simple, but uh, no, it, it, you're right. You're absolutely right. And it is fascinating though, to just, look back and go, huh, that's interesting that you did that two movies in a row. I actually, during the interview with him after the fan screening fathom event for this that I went to, he was talking and he's his, he was quoted as somebody was saying something about like, are you going to continue tying your movies together in any way? Like any universe, is there anything you're going to kind of follow on to this film? Like as a direct, you know, like existing in this universe. And he was like, well, I can't really do that because I sunk Tokyo. <laughs> and so, so he, he realizes what he's done and acknowledges it. Um, you but the real it. question, the real question with the weather, you know, there is a lot of discourse about climate change and what this film is trying to say about that, about how the weather got to be so bad and what the characters choose to do about it and what the ultimate cost is to the city of Tokyo, to the people of Tokyo. I wondered how you felt about that. I got a lot to say with a bunch of quotes to give, actually, but I wanted to know what you came away from it feeling first. So I've only seen the movie once. Um, I'll probably continue to have more thoughts on it. I knew about that angle and chose to ignore it when I watched this because I don't, just like with 1917, I didn't want to focus on the one-shot technical aspect. I wanted to focus on the narrative. So... While it was in the back of my mind, I really didn't see much of the deliberateness that came from the whole idea around climate. What I did see was the impact that weather can have and how we, in the form of Hina, have the power to change it in some way, shape, or form. I mean, I couldn't make that connection. What I saw was Shinkai using something that's familiar to all of us, the weather, rain, and the emotional impact that that can have on us and how it creates a value of needing to see the sun. Something that I thought was really great with Hina was that most, if not all, of her jobs were obviously at the service of her clients but we got to see an explanation of emotionally how they affected these people. So her first client, she made the sun come out and these store owners were able to get more business in and it made them happier. Um, the scene where um, I think it was Kai wanting to be able to spend time with his daughter. And the only way that he could do that was if they were outside 
making that happen. And so in a lot of ways, I didn't really pick up on the climate change issue as a political idea, but obviously Shinkai made this a supporting actor in terms of the weather and the climate and everything that all the impact that it made on it. Yeah. The other one is the fireworks, which is maybe one of the most beautiful shots. In the yes, film. absolutely. <laughs> From the top of the building when the fireworks, Oh my gosh. It's like, that's the most like your name memorable moment for me. Like the connective one that looks like the visuals with the dark sky and the, just shooting across. And, um, and of course that one is like a bigger job for her, but it has a broader effect on more people because it's affecting the entire city who's there to celebrate. So I immediately did pick up on it and started to wonder what this movie was saying about climate change, because he does make a point of talking about how Tokyo used to be under the water and humans came around and dug it up essentially and made it into what it is today. And so know it's bound to ultimately be reclaimed by the the land is what he says in the actual narrative of the film and there's this sense throughout the movie to me of how if there's anything that we as humans have no control over it's the weather like there is literally nothing and never has it been more evident for me than in seattle when there is snow predicted just as there was last week it is the most absolute, completely wackadoodle attempt at trying to figure out what what is going to get where in any situation. It's terrible. It's like I, it makes you wonder how these people have jobs as weather predictors because they're actually not doing it. It would be like an Oscar predictor, like being paid to just guess who's going to win the Oscars and getting it wrong every year and everybody being like, but we're still going to take your word for it and go stock up on food anyway. You know what I mean? It's really weird, but we just, we don't have any control. We are at its mercy, which makes the weather a very scary thing, right? And so this film sort of is exploring a lot of the idea of what, what would you do if you could control it? How would you, you know, play storm as you were from the x-men if you could do that right if you could just merely wish or pray and make the rain stop and the sun would come out how would you personally use that power and i think that many of us would use it way more selfishly than Hina would use but there is an element of climate change and i wanted to in case anybody was wondering what the intent was i wanted to share some of shinkai's specific thoughts on it first so he's, he's got, he said a couple things in different places and I've put them together. One is this. He says, I really had just two themes that I wanted to explore. One is, of course, climate change. You know, because lately there's just been so many disasters and we see it every day on the news and it's directly related to our lives. There are people actually dying and there's buildings crumbling and it was just something that moved me so much. It's something I worry about. So I wanted to incorporate that into my film, but also have the individual wishes of a boy contrasted with the wishes of the good of the community and what the conflict between the two would look like. People say that humans are destroying nature for the sake of their own conveniences, and I agree with that. And yet, I'm also the kind of person who doesn't hesitate to turn on the air conditioning in my room when it's hot. Climate change is a large-scale phenomenon with an unimaginable scope, but there's not much a single person can do about it on an individual level. Even so... My actions as a single person have a definite effect on the environment. 
It may feel like something that's out of your realm of responsibility, but it absolutely isn't. I made the film while thinking about how to deal with that problem, problem through the framework of entertainment. Humans think on a scale of 100 years or so, because that's our lifespan. But the world looks, the world works on a much larger scale. The idea that humans can't control the weather is one way to look at things, but at the same time, that's not quite right either, as humans have definitely changed the way the weather occurs. I don't really come to a clear conclusion on this, but the issue definitely lies at the heart of the film. It's more about exploring it. I love all of that, <laughs> frankly, um, and I really appreciated him saying those things in interviews. It helped me personally. Uh, and that's why I wanted to share, because I don't know if anybody else out there listening cares or, you know, maybe wanted to know what he actually intended. But I believe it's clear that there is no climate change message, and I put that in air quotes, in this movie. And it is an exploration of how it affects the lives of these characters in a way that makes you as a viewer reflect and think about how it might affect you if you were one of these characters. Absolutely, yeah. And it, it what it does for me is it, puts me in a position to accept the ending that we do because that was something that I had trouble with. I had trouble with the very end of the movie. And um, if there was a message in here, it could have been perceived as a negative one, honestly. Well, that's the point, right? Because Hodaka and Hina choose themselves over Tokyo. Right. And rather, actually rather it's Hodaka who makes the choice. Let's right. be real about this. Yeah. But this isn't, I don't think that this, that's meant to show us that he's making the right, and I put that in air quotes again, decision. That's the difference, right? It's not, it's showing us what was right for these two characters based on the love that had developed for them in the, the chaotic world that they live in and how important it is, be it romantic or familial love for a human being to have. And, so, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think climate change is real, and I think that the only point that Shinkai wanted to make is that this is just what it would look like for these characters, and hey, maybe you should consider what it would look like for you. So I think it's a love story with climate change as a plot element, not a climate change message disguised as a love story. And... There's two brilliant quotes in this that I think really highlight that confliction that we as a people would experience. One is by Kaisuke when he is making the decision to give Hodaka severance pay because he's realized that the cops are coming after him and they want him back. And he gives them all this money. And he's like, listen, I, I care about you. And I wish I could do more for you, but I am trying to get custody of my daughter and I can't let this affect that. And he says this at one point, he says, if I could sacrifice one person to make the rain stop, I would. Wouldn't you? And dude, I freaking paused and I thought about it for a half second and, and literally it only took me about a half second. And I was like, yep, <laughs> yep, probably would. And then what the movie allows me to do is reflect on that and it, you know, ultimately it comes back when we see Hodaka and Hina in the sky and they're falling and this is beautiful sequence. And of course, Radwimp's score, man, elevates everything emotional 
in any Shinkai film that they do. And he says, who cares if we can't see any sunshine? I want you more than any blue sky. And it's this great dichotomy, Patrick, because both of these characters are saying things that lead to exact opposite results, but they are both coming from a place of making that decision that gets them personally to the solution of being with the person that they love. Absolutely. And it's, I think that those two quotes are at the heart of what Shinkai is saying with regard to exploration. Exploration can lead to a right or wrong, but the art of exploration, that discovery, that to boldly go where no one has gone before, it leaves room to be right or wrong. It leaves room to ask questions and make mistakes and to make good and bad choices because the journey is important. And I think those two quotes really amplify two attitudes that exist in all of us. The idea that I want to be with this person and that means sacrificing this, but I want to be with this person and it means sacrificing that. I like the ambiguity. I like the conflict because they're both very real statements. They're very true statements. And I think that any one of us would be able to realistically say and be quoted as saying both of those. Completely agree. Completely agree. And I wanted to share just a couple quick more, and I've got a few more at the very end, but things that Shinkai shared in his interview, um, it was really fun to get to see that. I'm so glad I did it, uh, you know, because those things are, they just don't come along very often. And when it's a movie that you truly are passionate about, I think it's awesome to have a, a unique experience, like getting an interview with him. Earlier, he said about the weather. He said he had depicted it previously in his films, generally as beautiful and wonderful. But Japan has four distinct seasons and that the climate change um, brings about weather that is aggressive and violent and is something to be prayed for and no longer enjoyed. It is now a misery, and that's how it's depicted in this film as a difference. He said uh, it's very common in Japan. Everyone actually calls themselves, I'm a sunshine girl or I'm a rainy boy, is the way it was translated. And he said no one really believes that, right? Just like in this movie, people talk about it constantly. Like, oh, you're a sunshine girl. Ha ha ha. But it's like it's a it's about faith sort of it's almost like it's like a magical and spiritual thing that you want to believe because you want to believe in the results um and then he was talking about that quote that we just discussed by hodaka i want you more than any blue sky it's not he said it's not something that you should say it's something that you would be criticized to no end on social media over but he wanted to show a character shouting what he feels with no reservations and only concerns for his feelings in that moment. And I think it's perfect. And, it's, and he's absolutely right. I mean, these are also teenagers we're talking about, right? So if anything, you're not talking about people with like a well-thought-out plan on their heads. We're, we're acting on emotion and without some information necessary, you know, to make all the right decisions. So I think he, he nails that. Well, I wanted to ask you before we move um, on to connecting points, did you catch Taki and Mitsuha from your name and see how their story ties into weathering with you? Not without help from the internet. <laughs> Why'd you look it up? I wanted to share this with you. I'm I was sorry. Hoping you... I'm sorry. Go ahead. You can share with the rest of the world that doesn't know. 
Man. Well, darn you. I wanted to like shock you and have you be like, oh, that's <laughs> so you didn't though. The answer is no, I did you not. didn't no, catch I did it. Not, I did not catch it. Okay. Well, I'm going to be honest because I didn't catch it either the first time I saw it. Okay. I had, I went to the internet too, but, <laughs> the old internet. but I then learned that they were in the movie and I watched it again and I've now kind of understood where they're at and Shinkai talks about them in his interview as well. So for those that did not catch the two main characters of your name in the film, Taki is the grandson of the grand woman. Grand, that's not a word. <laughs> of oh, the grandmother. There you go. <laughs> who hires Hina to come be the sunshine girl so that she can put out the fire um, for her husband, dead husband on his birthday or something. And he offers them watermelon. That's Taki. He's living with his grandma. Mitsuha is no longer named Mitsuha. She has a different name tag on, but you can catch just a glimpse of the back of her head and her red ribbon when she is in the jewelry store selling Horika, the ring that he buys Hina. So the tie-in here goes a little bit beyond just them being in the movie as fun cameos. This is actually taking place at the end of Your Name. And I went back today, Patrick, and I watched the last scene of Your Name to place this and see if it lines up. And I freaked out at the end because I, it did so perfectly line up. And I ran upstairs to tell my roommate Ryan how awesome it was because I knew he would understand. And I had to tell somebody. And I was just geeking out because I couldn't tell you because I was waiting for the podcast. So they have been living in Tokyo. They don't know who each other are at the end of your name if you recall um, because it's sort of like a reincarnated type version of Mitsuha essentially so he doesn't know her name which is she has a new name it's not Mitsuha so now we get to learn what her actual name is that's the answer to your name it's kind of awesome because it's on her name tag but the weather towards the end of your name matches the weather of weathering with you before they meet again at the end of your name, it is raining heavily. And that's when we see Taki and Mitsuha pass by each other for the first time. Uh, they've got umbrellas. And there's that moment where they're like, hmm, I felt something. Something was weird. I just passed somebody like there was something there. And then we see weather transition into that. It's snowing. And it's like out of nowhere. It just changes to snow. And it's freezing outside. And then... In your name, after that scene, there is a transition, beautiful transition animated moment where the sun miraculously comes up and clears out the freezing weather. And then that day is the day they meet on the steps, Patrick. When they're running to meet each other on the steps, they are running through puddles and like generally flooded streets from the torrential downpours that have occurred the last days before that. So in that moment, when the sun is rising in your name and miraculously clearing out the rain and the random weird snow that occurred, that is when Hina spirited away and the weather cleaned up. That is when that takes place in your name. So it's literally they're, they're together in line and it works out perfectly. And I, and I just thought it was brilliant. I, I thought I couldn't believe like how amazing that was and 
it, it had to be on purpose. Like, why else would he have a scene in your name where the random weather goes from downpour to snow to sunlight in a matter of like 24 hours and then they meet? My head hurts now. Oh, gosh. Oh, the Internet didn't help me that extensively. So for those of you listening, you now have a better explanation than I could have ever probably imagined. Um, might want to timestamp this, Aaron, for those that are listening. Like, if you want the explanation of the Easter egg, please tune in here. <laughs> That's awesome, though. I, at some point when I, you, we own Weathering with You, well, I'll have to, I'll have to put those two together. Yep. To, you will. And you'll, you'll appreciate it just like I did once you do. Trust me. Yeah. Um, yeah. He also said a couple quick other things was he talked about how he wants to keep innovating like he did when he made your name and going in new directions. So he doesn't know if he's going to make another film that looks and feels similar to these two next. He's just not sure what will be, what he'll be doing. Um, and he was very, very strongly encouraging all animators not to copy him but to find their own way like he did, which I thought was a really cool thing. And then you'll enjoy this. He talked about how his partnership with Radwimps, and I forget the lead singer's name that he's become friends with or whatever, um, has developed. And after they worked together on Your Name, he sent Radwimps the script and said, hey, I want you to read this with no context. Just read it. And then send me back two songs. So that happened after three months. And then Shinkai listened to the music of those songs as he began working on animating the film for the next year and a half. So he didn't even animate it until he had Radwimp's music developed. And then he animated to the music they created based on his script, which is fascinating. And so he actually was very like intentional about saying he considers that this film is made in collaboration with Radwimps and not they're just doing the music. And I just, I love that. I thought yeah. that was awesome. Well, that's, I mean, that's very much apparent because there are several scenes that I picked up on where there's a reversal of the animation and clearly the music reverses as well. There's a, I forget what the effect is called, but it's a reverse essentially where you have the music that plays and then it just goes backwards. And at that moment you see raindrops going up or things happening in reverse, which is just visually and orally stimulating. <laughs> so I, I think Rad Wimps is fantastic. I'm looking up right now their discography and they've been around since 2003. I kind of want to pick up some of their stuff to see kind of what's out there beyond the Shinkai uh, movies. But um, yeah, they have a, uh, one, two of two albums between your name and weathering with you that I might check out. Well, let me know what you think of them if you do, because okay. I'd be curious. Um, you actually, when you mentioned raindrops, that was another thing he talked about in his interview is that they individually have to draw every single raindrop in that movie. And I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, that sucks. And it was, it showed like some of the scene. Oh my God, dude. Like, and he was talking about how, intricate it is because when you're doing the weather so heavily in your film and especially when you're you're focused on so much rain he's like you have to draw in the reflection of the drop what is actually in the picture and he talked about like how there's a moment where taki and hina i don't or not taki hina and hodaka they have this uh see-through umbrella and it shows that and he's talking about how you know 
it's very difficult because you're not just drawing an umbrella. You're drawing a clear umbrella, which you then have to draw a properly projected picture reflection of what it looks like behind the umbrella in the scene. And it, it is just, it's fascinating and really just, I appreciate the animation of this even more than I already did. I don't know that I could appreciate it more. It's incredible and just some of the best thing I've ever seen. Do you have anything else or are you ready to uh, move on to the connecting points? I'm ready to go. All right. Well, I know I've been talking, but I'm going to go first because of what our connecting points are. Because <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. Mine is the entirety of their bittersweet last night together in the hotel. So they've decided to run away and not get picked up by child services. They are turned away time and time again. They get picked up by the police and saved by a weather event caused by Hina. Finally, someone lets them get a room and they, they fall into this hotel room, man. And the way that you just experience the sense of relief that the characters experience, you really feel it so strongly. I think when they get into that room, you're so happy for them and they're safe and they've finally gotten some peace. And especially the first time when you don't know it's coming, (laughs) what's going to eventually take place at the end of this scene. It is this moment of just short, pure bliss together. They take baths and there's, you know, there's the funniness of it. Like, Oh, we're not taking baths together. Like take a boy's bath and then we'll do the girl separately. And they take turns and then, They want to get like one of all of the food. They're really like experiencing this luxury that they have for this hot second. They share the food with each other. They sing karaoke. It is absolutely beautiful. Um, Hodaka makes this touching prayer. It's really impactful and brings me to tears every time. Then he, uh, he gives Hina the ring finally as they're lying on the bed. And... She asks him if he wants the rain to stop. And then she essentially prays herself away, man. And it's, it's like you explained perfectly, um, earlier on about like the sacrifice that she's making in that moment. And it, it, dude, I, I lose it. I think every time because you just, you want to hang on to her. You want him to hang on to her. And you want her brother to hang on to her. Like, there's people that depend on her. But she believes that when she fades away, Summer will come back for good. And that it will be better for everyone. Because she is the required sacrifice. And everything about this whole sequence to me is perfect, Patrick. I think it has the right amount of emotional resonance. The right amount of just pure joyfulness. It has heartbreak. Um, but I think fully understanding what is happening and why it could be good for the world makes us wrestle with this uncertainty of how to even feel about what is taking place. Because part of you is literally soul crushed that Hina is gone and part of you is being pulled the other way and thinking like this has to happen because we have to save the earth. And it's 
such a beautifully crafted scene that to me shows why Shinkai is such a master. And this is like a great, great example of everything that he can do packed into this perfect little emotional moment. Um, this is why it makes him my favorite animation creator out there. It's, it'll be interesting to see where he goes from here. If he's going to continue to evolve. I, I love that scene and embedded in that for me was my connecting point. And that's that prayer that you mentioned. I don't have it. Um, I don't have the audio clipped, but because it's not in English, but I'll do my best to, uh, to, to re-say it. Um, he says, dear God, if you do exist, I beg you, this is more than enough. We don't need anything else. We'll manage somehow. So please don't give us any more and don't take any more away from us. I beg you, please, dear God, let us be together like this forever. I think it's safe to say that all of us at one point have had moments like this where we want life to just pause, where we just want to stay in this. And for me, it goes back to my one more takeaway. I think in this moment, all three of them are content. There are no problems around them. They are in the safety of a warm hotel room with no rules, no policemen, no responsibilities in that moment. And what could be construed as a selfish prayer, I think, is something that we all think about in that we don't want to let that moment go, that moment that makes us feel completely alive, completely content. And for him specifically, there is a pleading again. And, and this doesn't, I mean, I know I mentioned with Hina, the, the Jesus aspect of it, but I think there's this similar kind of attitude and prayer. Instead of saying, take this cup for me, he's saying, don't take anything away, but don't give us any more. I don't, we don't need anything else. Any other prayer I think would come across like, Hey, we want more. We want more. We want more. But he's like, I don't need anything else. We don't need anything else but we don't want you to take anything else away either. It's just that it from a from a script standpoint, it puts me in a in a place where I'm going, "Wow, that really is a moment that he is trying to cherish." And he knows that he doesn't need anything less or anything more that this moment right here is content and perfect. And I think that that whole scene encapsulates that. And I think it accents really well with that prayer that he says. Well, yep, I do too. So ditto on all of that. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go into depth because I knew you were going to, and you articulated it better than I could have. So I appreciate that. <laughs> but I, I absolutely agree. And that is also a big part of why I love that entire scene. Yeah. Also, I want to have a bathtub that big. That's that's huge, man. With jets. Yeah. yeah. Give me the hotel sauna, and, and, please. And, because the, and the neon lights. That's cool. That was actually freaking Really awesome. That's, I agree. It's like, I want to stay And this there. wasn't even one of the more expensive hotels. No, it was like, like 250 you know, a night, like I think the, it was. This was like the dump. The I love how at one point dump. they go to like the love hotel oh, and you're like, no, no don't go don't, to that don't one. Don't go there. No room at the end. Don't do that. <laughs> well, that wraps up another episode of Feelin' Film. Coming up this week, we've got some extra stuff coming your way after this one drops. Be sure to look for our coverage on the South Korean hit of 2019, Parasite followed by some fun bonus content exclusively for our patrons where we answer some big questions and make predictions about the coming year in film. Then Shinkai Month continues a few days later with our conversation on the Garden of Words. 
Now, just a couple of quick notes. If you could and would and feel so inclined, uh, feel free to leave us a rating and or review on iTunes. It always helps get the message across, lets people know how well we're doing and uh, why we should be listened to more. So if you can do that or feel free to do that, we'd love that. And also, outside of our weekly, bi-weekly, weekly-weekly podcast that we do, we also have written reviews that we drop on our website and through social media. So if you want to give us a follow, check out feelandfilm.com. You can see some of those written reviews that Aaron and Coles bring to our attention. Aaron, thank you for another great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.